Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, this is Helene Becker, Cowan Senior Airline Analyst, and we're joined today by Diana Burkett-Rocco, who is Alaska Airlines Head of Sustainability. Um, So Diana, thank you so much for doing this podcast with us. Um, I think it's really important that investors and others understand what airlines are doing to um, mitigate their carbon footprint. And I mean, obviously sustainability and the environment is only one part of the ESG program and everything else, but that's the one that we're really focused on in the short term and in the longer term. So airlines in general have committed to being carbon neutral by 2050. And you've been working on this issue for some time. In fact, I feel like you're an industry leader. Alaska's really done a lot historically in a lot of different areas, especially in the state of Alaska. You guys have pioneered so much in terms of technology and in takeoffs and landing and and doing it safely, because obviously there's a lot of fog in in Alaskan parts of it. Um, It's a very, it's a hard place to live in a hard place to fly into. So let's talk about, you know, all of that over the next few minutes in different categories. So we'll start with why is the issue important to the company? Why are you focused on this? Sure. Well, thanks, Helene, very much for having us and for your kind words. You know, Alaska has long had an ethos of, we talk about delivering value for all who depend on us or for all of our stakeholders. And the four stakeholder groups that we talk about, and they're often represented in a circle because they're mutually interdependent and it's not a hierarchy, are our employees, our guests, our owners, and our communities. And we have to make sure that we're delivering value for all of those in order for us to remain strong for the long term. And I think you know we're celebrating our 90th anniversary this year, and it sort of reminds us how we've weathered the ups and downs of the industry and some of the ingredients that have contributed to that resilience. So when you think about sustainability, I mean, I, the, the word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but the, one of the things that I like about it is the literal definition is to sustain for a long period of time. And so we think about delivering for those stakeholders as a requirement for sustaining for a long period of time and delivering long-term value. And environmental sustainability is a key part of that because we see how Uh, Communities are impacted by changes in the environment, um, sort of both physically and in the atmosphere. Uh, The social side of sustainability is similarly important for um, long-term talent development and for our guests. And you could sort of take a lot of examples across the spectrum of ESG. One thing that you noted that I think is sort of a cool, you know, almost serendipitous, but interesting conversion of just sort of safety and practicalities of the environment and sustainability is our required navigation performance software uh, that's now on all of our, our aircraft came out of a, a challenge with safety flying into Juno in between, you know, these two mountains, and there was a lot of extreme weather. And we developed our pilots and and others involved in flight operations developed this technology to use satellite-based navigation to um, develop safer flight paths into Juno. 
And now we use it in uh, many airports across the United States, but it also happens to be a more fuel efficient path because you're able to do more of almost a glide route with fewer accelerations and brakings, and it has contributed to improving our fuel efficiency. So there's many things that have operational benefits, safety benefit, and sustainability benefit all in one. And um, we can talk about other examples as we get into the conversation. That's great. Yes. That whole RNP into Juno was a very big deal when it was done. I mean, a lot of people don't remember it because they're new to either the airline industry or new to Alaska Airlines, but that was a huge undertaking. And you worked with the um, FAA and your, and to your point, your pilots really took the lead on that. And people don't people in the lower 48 don't understand Juno. It's the only yeah. airport, right? And that you can't drive to. It's it's a fly It's not the only, only one. We actually serve 20 communities in the state of Alaska and only three of them are accessible by road. By road. Okay. So it just really underscores how critical aviation is in Alaska. But Juno's the capital and they actually right. thought about moving the capital because you couldn't dependably get in and out of there. Um, so you're right, it was a huge and very uh, employee driven, which is uh, even better. Right, really exciting. Yes, the milk run, <laughs> which is people again, don't know about the state of Alaska and how important, and this is, this I really feel as part of your community involvement and engagement, how important the airline is to the state because you fly, and this is a little off topic, but you fly the what we call the milk run, which stopping every whatever, I'm going to get this wrong, but let's say every 15 to 30 minutes, um, bringing needed supplies to the communities that are generally, you know, small A and B. Um, that are reliant upon the airline for, for everything, including mail. Yes, it's groceries, mail, medicine. It's, yeah, the, those communities in Southeast up in the Arctic. It's one of the reasons we have a strong cargo business. And that ethos, I mean, it kind of gets back to the four stakeholders, but that ethos, I think, is sort of embedded in our DNA and similarly applies, although in different ways, to rural communities in the lower 48, but also to urban hubs like LA and San Francisco and San Jose and New York, actually being able to serve the needs of those communities. I think it, bring, it, it allows us to bring a slightly different perspective to making sure that we're serving the needs locally as well as across our system. Right, exactly so. So here's another question for you about the whole you know, sustainability issue. Why should your customers care and why should investors care about it? I get a lot of pushback from investors that, oh, they don't really care what airlines are doing as long as you're profitable and they worry about bringing on too much capacity and so on. But why should everybody care about what you're doing with respect to preserving the environment? Well, I think some of it comes down to that question about long-term value and truly long-term sustainability of um, the company, the industries, and the communities we serve. We do see, you know, impacts of climate change in the state of Alaska, for example. We see them in industries that we support, such as the fishing industry. And we need to make sure we're thinking about the stability of our industry and our communities over the long term, as well as the stability of our business over the long term. So that's the lens that we bring to it. We are really trying, and our board was incredibly 
helpful in, in helping us think through and scope our goals. We set near-term 2025 goals for across areas of, of ES and G, um, environmental, social, and governance. And we set a path, a five-part path to net zero by 2040. And one of the things that we've tried to do is be both um, think about the long-term, but start now. Think about what can we do now to build uh, innovation over a long period of time and try to be really practical about what can apply in our business in the next three to five years, as well as aspirational about um, our goals, not to sort of, you know, box ourselves in too narrowly in terms of what we as a company and an industry can achieve over the long term. So that's a couple of just ways that we think about it. Yeah, but they're important. They're important um, ways. And I think it's important to your customers. Do you find or are your business customers or corporate accounts coming to you and asking what you're doing as well and, and offering carbon offsets or I don't know if that's For sure. Really yeah, issue. no, very much. I think certainly corporate customers are leading the way. Many of our corporate customers have set their own net zero targets or sustainability targets, and we're a part of their sustainability picture um, in terms of you know, their business travel uh, contributing to scope three emissions on their books that are the direct emissions of our operations. And many of them have set objectives to reduce those over time. So they've come to us to work with us to figure out how we do that together, both through direct action. And we, a couple of years ago, started to work with Microsoft on uh, applying SAF to offset the business uh, travel emissions of uh, Microsoft employee travel from Seattle to our hubs in San Francisco. But they're also interested in recycling, in you know the life cycle of an aircraft. There's a variety of topics that they're interested in. So those are always fascinating conversations. And then um, increasingly, Individual guests are very interested. Uh, the switch to boxed water, which maybe we'll talk about, you know, got a lot of interest. And that's also an education opportunity to start talking about the challenges in the supply chain and the impact of plastic and waste and the importance of recycling. And we do offer a carbon offset option for our guests uh, flying on us and look forward to evolving that in the next couple of years as well. So there's two things I want to, well, three things that you just talked about that I want to expand on. The first is the boxed water for sure. The second is SAF and the third is climate and how it's impacting your hubs. So let's start with boxed water first, because I think that's fun. Um, when I saw that, I was pretty excited. I was, I had seen it on a plane before I actually heard about it. And I wondered, what is this? But they do boxed wine. Why shouldn't they do boxed water? So what was the impetus for that? Was it just plastic reduction? 2025 goals is to move the top five waste producing items in our, op in our onboard operation to more um, renewable, reusable, recyclable options. And uh, we've done some of that over time. We moved wine um, into aluminum cans. We've moved some of the glass bottles in our in-flight service to aluminum because it's lighter. So not so much about waste, but more about sort of the, the fuel efficiency of the operation. And in 2018, we went strawless when a lot of people were talking about <laughs> going strawless. And we removed 22 million straws and plastic stir sticks off of uh, the operation. So this was sort of a continuation of that journey and plastic water bottles are one of the most visible. And you probably remember it was even more painful during COVID because everybody got a little individual 
uh, plastic water bottle and the sort of volume of that water to the surface area of the plastic was, was difficult to see. And so it really drove this impetus to find a different solution. And box water, um, our supply chain and food and beverage teams are just phenomenal partners and doing a lot of ongoing sourcing for options. And Box Water is um, a company that was really motivated to work with us. And we work to understand the life cycle analysis of their product. The box is a recyclable carton. Uh, we did a, a study of all of our hubs to look at carton recycling availability in all of those stations um, to make sure that we would actually be able to recycle the product. And then the cap is actually a plant-based cap. And we visited their manufacturing facility, the, the uh, machine that actually boxes the water and, and uh, you know, completes the product is a really cool machine to see. And it removed our 1.8 million pounds of, um, of plastic off of our aircraft annually. And then the next piece is, okay, you remove the plastic bottle, but what about the cup that you're pouring the, the water into? And so we actually went to paper cups instead of plastic cups for our water service. So now it's a plastic three water service. And we will actually move to, we found a plastic cup that can also withstand, you know, alcohol and other beverages. And so we'll move entirely to paper cups, sorry, in the next uh, year or so. And that's just an ongoing journey to um, continue to source onboard products to make sure that we've got more renewable and recyclable options. They have to be price competitive. They have to be able, be able to deliver at scale and reliably. And so that's a long-term journey with the supply chain. Yeah, that's awesome. I just think that's very forward thinking. And, you know, again, Alaska Air is, is definitely a leader in the area. One thing that's really cool, and I think sort of underscores our ethos around waste, um, and I know we'll switch to, to SAF and emissions in a minute, but our onboard recycling uh, program was actually designed by Horizon flight attendants years ago okay. and, you know, really spurred by our employees. You know, in 2019, we were recycling 83% of onboard waste. Obviously, we had to pause that during COVID, but we've now brought it back. And it's just really cool to see how some of those um, grassroots initiatives can really make tremendous change, not, not unlike what you talked about with RP. Yeah, I think it's amazing. You have always had a great relationship with your employees and they've always contributed to, to the well-being of the airline. And, you know, here's just another example for sure. Is there anything else we should talk about with respect to plastics? <laughs> no, we could talk for a while, but let's go ahead and switch to Seth. Okay. So, so yeah, that's a big thing, right? It, it, you guys are one of the few airlines that still have a hedging program. Most of the other airlines have eliminated their hedging because they didn't get it right. You guys obviously are seeing the benefit of that right now with, with high fuel costs. But, you know, how do you think about this SAF? It, it's not scalable yet. Um, do we need to have um, government incentives? I mean, how should investors think about um, the use of, of, of SAF and how do we get enough of it? It's a, it's a big topic and a good question. So maybe just for context, our five-part path to net zero includes five steps. The first is operational efficiency as a foundation. The second is uh, our fleet transition, fleet renewal, and in, in particular, uh, bringing on the MAX. The third is SAF. The fourth is electric or hybrid electric propulsion, which we see being first most viable in the regional space. And the fifth is carbon offsets only as needed to close a gap to target because the timeline of some of those technologies is variable. 
And when we talk about this pathway, we often put an asterisk next to SAF because it could be a small part of the path or a large part of the path, depending on how some of those levers that you're talking about get implemented or not. You know, we're focused on building a diverse portfolio of SAF producer partnerships. We've got offtake agreements with uh, several different uh, producers at this time. And then we also have some partnerships that are not for offtake yet because the, the product isn't being produced, but that are partnerships to get the technology off the ground. The latest is uh, with a, a partner called 12 out of the Bay Area, super innovative company that have designed a technology that takes recaptured CO2 and um, using renewable energy and water transforms it into uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And in particular, this product they call e-fuel because it's based on um, renewable energy. That pathway in particular, very early in its evolution, needs to benefit from um, continued investment in scale from we're committed to working with them to do a commercial demonstration flight certification. And certainly then for, for that SAF and for others, they will in the next several years continue to rely on tax incentives or renewable energy credits. And we need more of those, including at a federal level, to make sure that we're chipping away at the price premium that SAF has over JetA. Um, that's going to take time. It's going to take public policy action as well as private investment. But SAF does represent the greatest sort of near to medium term opportunity that we have to decarbonize aviation. So all of us are very committed to that pathway. The question just is how far, how fast can we get there? Got it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an exciting technology. I mean, just across the board, but it's really being able to scale it have it available, and then get it from the manufacturing site to the airports. <laughs> and, and I don't know on the West Coast, but I know on the East Coast, the Colonial Pipeline has said it will carry SAF, which is a good starting point. The good things about SAF is that it is certified as a drop-in fuel. So you can mix it into, you know, it needs to be blended, but you can mix right. it into pipelines and, and fuel systems. But there are, you know, I think as humans, we tend to want there to be a really simple answer to problems. <laughs> and SAF is one of those that is a has a very complex answer. There's no one thing that is going to bring it to scale at a commercially viable price. And so we've got to think about delivery using rail and pipelines and blending facilities. We've got to think about feedstocks and diversifying the pathways to actually create the fuel. There's just different types of pathways to get there. Um, we've got to think about those tax incentives and the policy infrastructure. Um, and we've, we do have to think about sort of education and awareness for uh, corporate customers and um, individual customers to know that this is out there and continue to support its development. Exactly so. And then the other thing that we were going to talk about was you mentioned, I think, number, point number four, hydrogen electric. Yes. So I think I'm new to that. I know I know eVTOLs and electric aircraft, but I think I'm new to the hydrogen aspect of it. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Sure. And we can talk about eVTOLs too, but I will caveat this by um, saying that I'm not an engineer. And my bachelor's degree in chemistry is long, um, long outlived. Uh, but hydrogen and battery can both play a really important role in building novel propulsion systems. The challenge with battery is that the energy density of it is such that 
first of all, its weight doesn't burn off over time the way that you fill a fuel tank and it burns off over time. But also the energy density is such that it's really best designed for a smaller number of seats and shorter distances on its own. There's some really cool companies that are bringing electric aircraft to market and they're really exciting, but they don't get to the scale of like a 76 seat aircraft um, in our regional operation. So then the question is, what could you add to the battery or to an electric you know, part of the propulsion system to back it up? And you could add traditional fuel um, in partnership with battery, or you could add liquefied hydrogen or other forms of hydrogen to back up the battery. And that's sort of what the, the opportunity is to think about the combination of those uh, different technologies. We're partnered with a company called Zero Avia, mm. which is building a, an electric um, hydrogen powertrain system. We've contributed a Q400 to their development pathway to look at how would you actually take a Q400 and retrofit it to fly on hydrogen electric powertrain technology. And I think that's an exciting, it's going to take, it's not in the next five years, it's going to take time to make sure that the technology is um, sufficiently advanced to sort of carry the, the you know, a, a larger aircraft than just a nine to 19 seater. And it's going to take a long time for certification. But if we don't start planning those things now, we won't get there. So I think that's sort of where that electric hydrogen electric propulsion um, idea fits in our pathway. Got it. And I think also Raven Alaska committed to buying the ZA powertrain to retrofit on their aircraft. So yes, this is very exciting. And last year when I was doing work on the electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, I got out my old physics books <laughs> and I, I learned it. it. It was a fun first quarter <laughs> that I learned about the technology, which is so different from aircraft that move down the runway, rotate and take off versus how you transition from hover to moving forward, hover and landing. I mean, it is it is a major um, physics. Um, it's a good uh, point. It's a very different <laughs> way yes. of flying. Yes. You, yes. you know, the, the only reason that we're not focused on eVTOLs is there's one example that might be relevant, but the only reason we're not focused on eVTOLs is not that they're not exciting because they are, but what we're focused on in that five-part path is decarbonizing our operation. Right. And right now an eVTOL couldn't supplant a flight that we fly in our operation. So it would be a really interesting add-on to say, get from SFO to your home in the Bay Area. Um, almost like a park and ride system, um, exactly. but it just can't supplant any of those existing flights. So we're most focused on our operation. There is a cool, we've got a, a new venture investment arm, uh, new as of last October called Alaska Star Ventures. And through ASV indirectly, we're invested in uh, a company called Beta Technologies, who have a really cool electric operation. Um, I saw it fly recently and it's, I say see rather than hear because you just don't hear it. It's kind of amazing. But something like that could also be interesting as a partner to our systems, say on the cargo front to extend the reach of our existing cargo operation through a part, you know, Beta would, would work with a, a partner or something to get things sort of farther into uh, smaller villages. 
Got it. Yes, they're working and UPS is working with them as well on that. They're, um, my colleague, Kai von Rumer, knows Beta very well because he and I partner in the eVTOL area. He's our aerospace analyst. And yeah. of course he does the he does the manufacturing and I do the people side. So we've partnered to, to learn more and get more involved in the space. And to your point, you're right. Anything, you're not, there's nothing on the horizon in the eVTOL sector that's going to get 50 or 150 people from San Francisco to LA. It's all about ground transportation replacement. And I think there are a lot of people that don't understand that. And then don't even get me started on the regulatory front, which um, a lot of people don't understand the, the hurdles that you have to go through to get an airplane from concept to actually certification. So we won't go there. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> but no, so we're focused on what do you do with, you know, our 737s and our E-175s to make sure that they continue flying more sustainably. Exactly. I noticed you guys are replacing Q400s with Embraer aircraft. Is are they more fuel efficient? What is the what's the genesis behind that? I would think a turboprop, which is the Q400, right, a sophisticated turbo, would be more efficient than a jet. The fleet transition in the well, actually, both mainline and regional operations are really about the efficiency of the operation and the simplicity okay. of the operation. Really about making sure that we are uh, simplifying, including pilot training, maintenance simplification, all of those fronts. Got it. Okay. Let's see. What else should we talk about before we go on to diversity and commitments to social? Is there anything else we should talk about with respect to environment or sustainability or? things that we might have missed. Let's talk about operational efficiency just for a okay. second and, and maybe work in. Um, you had asked about GSE. Right. Well, let's, yeah, let's go ahead and, and talk about the operational efficiency because I think that's that's really important and day of operations tend to be fraught <laughs> with, with issues that <clears throat> when we wanted to talk about climate as well and, and how that's impacting your hubs because so I've always thought of Seattle specifically as being kind of a mellow place. Like, yes, there's a lot of rain in the winter, but it's kind of a mellow city. And yet it's had its issues of snow and really, I don't want to call it severe weather because it's not, but it's weather that you would normally never think of when you think of Seattle. So let's talk about those what is that, two or three things? So maybe let's start with, um, Seattle is a good you know, microcosm. It's our largest hub and there's a lot going on here. And Seattle itself has grown tremendously over the last decade. So has our operation uh, here at SeaTac. So a couple things there. One, you asked a little bit about, have we seen the impacts of climate change? And there has been uh, more severe weather. You know, our city tends to go in cycles. I remember, you know, 15 years ago living here and there was a snowstorm that shut down the city for days. So it, it goes ups and downs and we have to adapt to that. Uh, we did have a pretty significant um, period of excessive heat last summer um, that was a good learning experience for how do you keep crews cool. But the bottom line is how, how do we work with our airports to make sure that we're set up to navigate all of those um, different dynamics? And there are working groups at SeaTac, uh, at SFO, and elsewhere to think about 
um, how do we navigate, how do we both advance the sustainability path, but also navigate challenges or changes that come up um, as we move forward. Probably the biggest infrastructure uh, impact we see is in the state of Alaska and um, ongoing work to make sure that we're working with the state and in our own uh, own terminals to you know keep runways uh, strong and continue to navigate the impacts of sort of shifting land and permafrost and those things. But the other aspect of an airport operations is what do we do on the ground to make sure that we're running a tight operation and something that goes with that is a you know as efficient operationally and efficient environmentally operation. And so we're focused on a couple of things there. One is we have a goal of cutting the emissions from uh, carbon emissions of our GSE in half by 2025. We've got 34% of our GSE right now is electric. Obviously, that requires having sufficient infrastructure to charge them, including through things like rainstorms. And so that's an ongoing, got a long-term uh plan to to evolve our GSE fleet and work with airports on infrastructure to make sure that we're moving in the right direction there. There are some forms of GSE that simply don't come in electric form. So that's obviously a longer term issue with the supply chain. But the other thing in the operation is, you know, using best practices, like making sure that the ground power works, that it's at the right temperature coming out of the airport and that it's plugged in at the right time so that pilots can turn off the APU. And that's a multifaceted problem to make sure that you know, the temperature is controlled the right way, the technology works, the ground crew is set up to plug it in, and then that the pilot you know, trusts that it's going to get plugged in and is able to turn off the APU. Or at some airports, we're able to uh, use single engine taxi. And one of the things that we did last year is we actually you are familiar with our performance-based pay program. Um, that rewards employees for achievement of goals. One of our goals now, starting in 2021 and going forward, is actually around carbon emissions. So that 10% of the bonus is based on a target around carbon emissions or carbon intensity of the operation, so that everyone is incented to continue to come up with those solutions to improve the operational efficiency of the airline. That's very detailed. That's more than I was thinking. (laughs) So that's really Good to know, for sure. So so just talking about flight shaming for a minute, people don't understand how much the industry is doing to get ahead of of whatever 2050 rules. Your goals are 2040. You mentioned that earlier. That's important. Um, You take the lead in um, a lot of different areas, working with your own, you know, people who are also figuring out. I mean, that's the best, right? When your people who are dealing with the day-to-day operations can figure out how they can reduce cost or to your point, you know, contribute to improve their, their performance pay, I guess. I guess that's the way to think about that. So what else? Let's shift gears and maybe talk about diversity and commitments to social aspects of the business. I'm, I'm not right. sure how to think about the social aspects, but, you know, the airline industry has diversity within the company, especially at ranks below the C-suite. You go to the airport, you see a lot of people who are diverse. Um, You guys are especially unique because you do have a big indigenous population in the state of Alaska that that you very often address. And and I know I've talked to the company about it in the past. I mean, I've covered 
Alaska Air for a very long time since it was a smaller airline. And when Seattle was the southernmost point on its route network and, and watched it develop till Seattle was the midpoint of the network. And now, and now we're down to Belize. And now you're down to Belize and now to Hawaii and Costa Rica. And um, yes, there are a lot of places. And then east, you fly to the east coast. A lot of places that Alaska Air goes now. Anyway, so, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about commitments of the board. I, I, the board is pretty diverse too, by the way. It is a very diverse board, both think, um, gender as well as race, race and ethnicity. Right. I think your lead independent, I don't know who it is. I should know this, who it is now. But at one point, your lead independent director was was an Alaskan resident, Alaskan native, No. Well, right now we have uh, Patty Bedient is actually now our chair. She was our lead independent okay. director. She's now our chair. So female um, chair of the board. And then we have woman who's Alaska native on the board. We have a diversity of geography, as well as also um, thinking about deep roots in Alaska and in Hawaii to make sure that we're reflecting those communities. Okay. And then within the company, what are you doing? I, I imagine entry level is pretty easy to be diverse. And then as you go up the scale, maybe it gets a little bit harder. So how are you thinking about encouraging people? I find that a lot, I see it with my kids who are all grown up and starting to raise kids of their own. They're leaving. It makes me question my choices. <laughs> I worked throughout their whole entire life. I never you know, took time off other than the leave I got when I had them. And I find it astonishing that they're all like, I was your role model <laughs> and, and they're making a different choice. So I kind of wonder about my choices. But anyway, what are you doing in the, in the funnel to keep people, to, to attract and retain, really retain? Attract, retain, and diversify, it sounds like is, is part all of your of question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so there's, I would think about it kind of in four parts. One is goal setting. So we did set some goals last year around diversity of our workforce, as well as um, some metrics around building an inclusive culture. And uh, the diversity of our workforce and diversity of our leadership, actually, sorry, in particular, goal that we set was for leadership to senior leadership to reflect the diversity of the front line. And so in particular, our full employee base is 30% Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And the leadership ranks were 16% Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So we've got year-by-year -year targets to move that to 30%. We're at nearly 20% now, so we've made some progress over the last year uh, and need to continue to make progress through the next several but so part of it is goals, having something to shoot for. Mm. We did then, similar to the um, carbon intensity goal that I talked about for uh, our PVP program, we also put a goal for our performance-based long-term executive compensation, performance-based pay. We put a, a goal in that system around achieving those uh, leadership diversity targets. And the reason that we put it in long-term executive comp is leaders have the best opportunity to develop and um, advance talent. And secondarily, it happens over time. So the third part then is what are the tools that you give people to attract, develop, retain? And we've been working with our leaders to make sure that they're not only accountable, but also they've got 
information about what is diversifying our workforce look like, making sure we have diverse candidates, slates and interview panels. We've put leadership development programs in place, um, including a newly launched leader academy. And we established a mentorship program this year to support networking and access to leadership across the board. And then we have a vast network of business resource groups or BRGs that represent a variety of different uh, groups within our employee base and executives sponsor those so that there's both support, visibility to that talent, learning from that business resource group um, and access to leadership with sort of a two-way exchange of ideas. So, you know, there's a variety of different things that we need to do um, on an ongoing basis. The fourth piece is then how do we engage the community to continue to diversify our talent pipeline? And there's a number of things that we've put in place this year, not specific to diversity, but things like the um, Ascend Pilot Academy, which we just launched this year to develop a dedicated pool of um, pilots, but more broadly going even farther upstream in the talent pipeline, working with community-based organizations to introduce young people to aviation careers and introduced a broader diversity of young people to aviation careers. And a couple of examples, we have aviation days, we call them in Seattle and Portland, where we bring this year it was 2,500 young people across Portland and Seattle to our hangar to meet pilots and flight attendants and mechanics. They learn about how an airplane works. The folks from Joint Base Lower Lewis McCord down the road bring a big aircraft over and just a lot of learning. But we also have uh, career programs, pilot training programs, mechanic training programs that come and uh, talk to young people about how to get involved in those opportunities. And then just specific to the Alaska Native population, which you raised, we have a deep partnership with a program called Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program, which uh, supports young people across Alaska Native villages to have access from very early ages to good STEM education support and access then to fly to Anchorage for accelerated programming in the junior high and high school years um, and into college and beyond to make sure that we've got a great pipeline of um, STEM uh, talent coming out of those communities. And in particular, we're working with them on an aviation track so that we can get some of that talent specifically dedicated to aviation. That's, that's, so, that's awesome. Not unlike yeah. SAF, it's a complex challenge, but a lot of different strategies. Well, and it takes time to develop and people have to understand that it's a great career, right? It's exactly it can be a well, great and just career. how many different career options are within aviation and that you can move between them as well. Right, exactly. And I think a lot of people within the state of Alaska anyway, because it's so vast, get their pilot's license at very young ages. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's that's really a major positive for the airline because you do have access to people who you know, who have that that ability from from young ages. Yeah. And that innate sort of love and appreciation of flying because they grew exactly. up with it. Exactly. So um okay I I think that we covered everything. Is there anything we missed that we should we should hit? I we talked a lot about reducing plastics. We talked about a lot. sustainability. We talked about, yes. I mean, we, we covered every element of what you do. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. We talked a little bit about the public policy requirements for mm. uh, SAF, but I think if it's useful, just sort of maybe to double down on that, I think we've, we're, we benefit from a low carbon fuel, um, 
a low carbon fuel standard program in the state of California that opts uh, SAF in for a tax incentive there, um, which helps with the price. And we've got low carbon fuel standard programs in development in Oregon and Washington with the goal of being comparable to California so that we can over time build a market up and down the West Coast. We do really need that federal support for um, not just additive benefit, but broader benefit across the country. The best option right now is the SAF Blenders tax credit, uh, which exists in a couple of different um, legislative vehicles. But we're really focused on trying to get that over the finish line to make SAF a uh, more scalable option down the road. Great. That's, um, that's A, important, and B, good to know. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for your time this this afternoon today. <laughs> Thanks for being interested. It's fun stuff to talk about, and it, it is important to our collective long term. I think it is, and and I think the 2020s are all about just exploring. It's I call it the exploration decade. Just exploring every aspect of it. The 2030s will be about creativity and creating everything and getting regulatory approvals and getting everything across the finish line in 2040s are about implementation. And in Alaska's case, you, you anticipate being at net zero by 2040. So I think it's like very exciting. Lots of well, good Well, thanks, Helene. We're, uh, we are we're committed to making progress and we're trying to do it in sort of typical Alaska style, you know, smart, pragmatic, doing all our homework, trying to think about what's possible now and what's possible in the future. So, and we know we can't do it alone. There's a lot of people that we learn from and certainly benefit from partnerships uh, across the private sector and uh, in the public sector as well. That's great. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much to you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.